Mike's asked that we have two readings this morning, um, that the first reading would be from Romans chapter 11, um, which Andy is going to read for us in a few moments. And the second reading is from Exodus chapter 5, verse 22 through to Exodus 6, verse 12, which Sylvia will read to us. So, Andy, would you like to read uh, Romans chapter 11 for us, please? The 11th chapter of Romans. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature... 
and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. O the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Um, Just before uh, Sylvia uh, reads Exodus chapter 5 and part of chapter 6 to us. Um, Mike wanted to say a few words. Thanks, Dave. Good to be with you all. Um, Eleven years ago, my son Rob stood here with Kirsten Edwards, who some of you know, and they were married. They they made their vows to each other, and um, Nick Willis was the man who uh, took the service, and he read... Psalm 91, which is full of promises from God. Uh, You might look at it sometime. It's full of promises that begin with the words, I will, I will do this. And Nick's uh, theme for the day was, God loves to say, I will. God's word is full of his promises to his people. And when we read this section of Exodus chapter 6, which is the first of the daily Bible readings, you'll see it here as well. God loves to say, I will. And here he is saying, I will to his people Israel. Thanks, Dave. Exodus chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? In a few moments, Mike's going to, uh, to speak to us. But before um, Mike comes up to speak, let's, um, let's sing together, echoing some of the words uh, from that Romans chapter 11 reading that we had. Thinking about us being branches grafted into a vine and understanding that that vine is Jesus and from Jesus we draw our strength and our life. If you'd like to use the praise the Lord as the sun might be a bit on that screen, it is number 128 if you have a, if you have a praise the Lord to hand. You are the vine and we are the branches. Keep us abiding in you. Mike, would you like to come and speak to us? Thank you. I feel very low-tech this morning. I've got a book with writing in. <laughs> I'm very impressed with all this. Um, just going back to Romans 11, I think what Paul is saying to us is don't be ashamed of the Jewishness of the gospel. You will have heard of replacement theology, the idea that God's finished with, with his people Israel and that it's all to do with Gentile Christians that is really unscriptural and it's anti-Semitic, I believe. God's promises, all those promises that he made in Exodus 6, all those I wills still apply to God's people. And there are many people, many Christians in this country, I think, who, who find that an uncomfortable message. A friend of mine has just started going to Evensong at his local church where he makes up 25% of the congregation, incidentally. And he said the congregation began to diminish when the minister started to, to preach uh, a lot from the Bible and to mention God's, uh, the, the Jewishness of the gospel. People started to leave. And I just wonder how this country would, um, would manage if an anti-Semitic regime took over. You know, we go to Bulgaria quite a lot and visit the brothers and sisters there. And I'm very proud of their record on, on this thing because uh, during the war, they were allies of Germany. And very early in the war, officials from the uh, Nazi party went to Bulgaria and told them that they had to round up the Jewish population. And there are a lot of Jews in Bulgaria. And they began to do it. And uh, there's a story that I find very moving. That, uh, the second city in Bulgaria is called Plovdiv. 
and the Jews in that city were told to uh, take the belongings that they could carry in a suitcase and assemble in the sports ground, in the, in the football ground. And they were all standing around, hundreds, thousands probably of, of people, frightened people, with, with all the possessions that they could carry. And uh, soldiers, guards on every entrance. At which point, the Metropolitan, that's a sort of Archbishop of uh, Plovdiv, stood up and made an impassioned speech. And this is what he said, quoting from the book of Ruth. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And the gods opened the doors of the stadium and let the people out. And no Jew from Bulgaria went to the concentration camps during the Second World War. I think it's a terrific tribute to those people. And I wonder what would have happened in this country. I wonder what would have happened here. I, I hope it would be the same, but I'm not so sure. We were in, in Keswick for Keswick Convention a couple of years ago, and Christian Friends of Israel had a, a, a stand there, a display stand. And the local churches in Keswick actually organized a demonstration against Christian Friends of Israel. And I know that Jews for Jesus had a stand, and they were heckled in the street by uh, anti-Semitic remarks. It has no place in God's church. We, we, you can buy greetings cards that have the words of Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And they're lovely words. We send them to each other. But they're words initially addressed to God's people, Israel. And they're still God's people, even though I'm sure some of the things that they do politically must grieve him. What I want to talk about this morning is that I think we need to re-engage with the Jewishness of the gospel. In two ways, I think it would enrich us culturally and I think it would enrich our understanding. And I want to just spend a bit of time uh, showing you what I mean by that. Uh, first of all, culturally, I think... Uh, I don't know if you've been watching any of the TV series about the history of Christianity, and, and it's very obvious that each society has reinterpreted Christianity for its own local culture. And it's interesting, when we go to Bulgaria, we can see how they've done it there. Uh, they, do it, they have a big iconostasis behind the, behind the altar, a big gold division. And that's the division between man and God. The, uh, the only people who go behind the iconostasis are the priests, because that's the presence of God. It's very interesting to see how they've taken something out of Scripture and made it their own in that way. Incidentally, when a baby is born, if it's a boy and he's baptized, christened, he gets taken behind the iconostasis. If it's a girl, they don't get that. They don't get that, right? Um, and I spoke to one of the priests, and uh, he's a nice man, Costa. And I said, Costa, what's this all about? And he said, it's not, he said, it's not sexist. I know what you're thinking. But he said, when a boy is born, he can be a priest. So we take him behind the iconostasis into the presence of God, and, and we give him a look at what can be his. Um, and I, it made me think, and I don't know, you might like to think about this. How have we made 
the Jewish gospel English. Uh, and I think, the, well, the answer I came to is that we've made it pretty dreary. We've really made it a bit miserable. Sue and I went to a book launch by a Messianic Jew called Michelle Guinness. She's married to the, the minister, Peter Guinness, who's the minister of the church near the hospital where I work. And uh, she began by talking about Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm sure you all know immediately what's in Nehemiah chapter 8. The exiles have returned, okay? And they come back and the prophet, sorry, um, the scribe, Ezra, is reading the book of the law to all the people. They're all assembled in the open air. And Ezra is reading the law. They've, they've, they've forgotten all about it. And it's the Feast of Trumpets. And every time Ezra reads out a bit of the law, the people weep because they've not been observing it. And so it's a very graphic picture, isn't it? Here there's Ezra the scribe reading out the law and all the people in the open air. And they're all weeping. At which point Nehemiah stands up and says, just cut this out, will you? I, I, this is, I, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he says it's the Feast of Trumpets and we're commanded to rejoice. And he said to them, right, clear off home and have a party and do it to God's glory and in his presence. And that's what happens. And that's a very Jewish thing. We, I think, in this country, especially when you go into those great big grey castles, which are Anglican churches, we've made it into a, a, a thing of dullness, um, we pretend that Jesus uh, was an Englishman, and he wasn't. Scarce, scarcely a month went by in the life of the Lord Jesus without a Jewish feast, without a festival. And they were celebrations in God's presence and to his glory. Can you turn, open your Bibles at Deuteronomy 14? Um, And we have one of the tithes. I think there are many tithes, actually. But this is a very special one. I like the sound of this one. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink or anything you wish. And then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Isn't that a good tithe? Save up a tenth of all that you earn. Buy the stuff that you really like and have a party and do it in God's presence and to his glory. That's the Jewishness, I think, of the festivals. And I just wonder what it would be like if we actually did that sort of thing. You know, we've just finished celebrating Christmas. What would it have been like, I wonder, if we'd done our celebration together? You might find that a horrifying thought. Um... But if we'd actually brought all our food and all our drink together and celebrated in God's presence and to his glory and with his family, I think it would change the way, because Christmas, I think, is the nearest thing that we've got to a, 
a Christianized festival and we've made it into something, well, pretty unpleasant, I think. It's to do with overindulgence in all kinds of ways. Whereas the Jewish feasts were triumphs of, well, they were, one thing they were a triumph of was all-age worship. Now, I know you're really interested in all-age worship in Old Trafford. Have a look at the pattern of Jewish festivals because everybody is involved, from the youngest to the oldest. And there are, there, are, there are festivals like Purim, you know, the Feast of Esther, which is a lark, which is, a, which is fun. It's full of drama and people joining in and kids having a good time. And you know the story of Esther where, you know, the baddie gets what's coming to him. And every time his name is mentioned, the kids have the, the name Haman, his name, on the soles of their feet. And every time his name is mentioned... All the kids stamp their feet and they stamp out Haman. They, and, and, and they make Haman Taschen, Haman pockets, which are, which are pastries. Um, did you have Haman Taschen in Germany? Is that where it comes from? No? I'm probably pronouncing it right, actually, you all. So. <laughs> um, but they're little pockets of pastry filled with mincemeat. They're like mince pies, but they're in pockets. Haman Taschen. Um, and every time the minister or the rabbi says rejoice, he has a little drink of wine. And so the whole thing is a lark, and everybody joins in, and it's fun. And I think it would be fun to try to reinvent some of the Jewishness of the festivals. And if you want to have a look at Michel Guinness's books, uh, there's one called The Heavenly Party, that's the book launch that we went to. And there's another one called Chosen, which is a terrific read, which is about how she came from being Jewish to being a Christian. And they're both worth reading. And the Heavenly Party has got a really good recipe for sticky toffee pudding as well, which I, which I recommend. So you don't get many, you don't get many exhortations with recipes, do you? We have, perhaps we should do more of that as well. And talking about, uh, so I'm not suggesting that we just kind of ape the Jewish festivals and we, we all start celebrating um, Hanukkah and things like that. But what I do say is, as a model, they're a happy mixture of worship and celebration and fun. And they're in God's presence and to his glory. And they make faith a part of everyday life and not something separate. And that's what... And so I think there's something here that we can learn from and benefit from if we re-engage with the Jewishness of the gospel. And talking about young people, you know, when a young uh, Jewish boy is 13, he's bar mitzvah. He he's becomes a part of the congregation. And when a, when a girl is 13, she's bat mitzvah. And, and, and from that age, that boy is, is able to take part in some of the services and to do the readings. You ready for this, Sam? <laughs> you better start practicing because that's what they do. Um, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say because I was just thought of a joke, but I won't tell it you. I'll tell it you afterwards. Um, <laughs> it's a bar mitzvah joke. Um, I'll tell it you anyway. <laughs> a Jewish family in South Africa trying to outdo all the all the other Jewish families, and so they. I've changed this from last night, right? <laughs> so they hire a, they hire a procession of elephants. And they're, uh, and they're processing on all these elephants to the synagogue. And suddenly there's a hold-up. The Mahout at the front holds his hand up. And a whole 
row of elephants uh, lurches to a halt and the boy's father shouts forward what's the hold up and the mahout says another bar mitzvah <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't have told it <laughs> um, what I really want to talk about is, is, is involving young people you know we're a bit funny about uh, young people and, and, and what's the right age for them to get involved I hope Steve's listening in the creche because he'll recognise where this story comes from I went to a, a meeting once and the pianist the pianist had gone AWOL uh, and so somebody had stepped in uh, and they couldn't really play the piano they could play it better than I could but barely and it was one of those one finger name that tune sort of accompaniments which was painful painful to listen to and then, and then we broke for, for a meal. And during the meal, there was a young lad who, um, who sat at the piano and just played, you know, just to amuse himself, played beautifully and, and flawlessly. And then in the second meeting, we went back to name that tune. And I thought, uh, what, you know, would it have been a disaster if he'd played the hymns? I don't think it would. Steve will know who this young man is if he's listening. Um, I think there's a place for us involving our young people from, from a much earlier age in the things that we do. They're part of our family and they're precious to us. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about in Jewish culture is the Sabbath, Sabbath Eve meal. Uh, Friday evening, a Jewish family will get together They'll light the Havdalah candles, twin candles, and they have a meal. And that meal is a, a one which uh, very often friends are invited to. And it's a time to think about your faith and to talk about your faith and to talk about where you are and where you want to go and what you think God's doing in your life. And I think we could benefit from that. It's the sort of thing that you could invite your non-Christian friends round to and, and just talk in a general way about the spirituality of life, even if they don't share your Christian beliefs. I think it would be a time when we could actually get together and, um, and uh, share something very precious. And I think it would enrich our culture, as all these things would, I think, if we got a bit more Jewish in the way that we think about things, and a bit less English and a bit less Anglican. Because English, because Jesus wasn't an Englishman. You know, I don't know if you ever heard um, uh, Helen Shapiro's uh, autobiography, but she said when she first became a Christian, she went to buy a New Testament, and she said it was full of Englishmen. <laughs> there was, they were all living in Israel, but all these people called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Peter, and James. And she said, you know, where has all the Jews gone? <laughs> um, God, uh, Jesus wasn't an Englishman, he was Jewish. And everything that he does and says is rooted in Jewish history. And so if we want to understand what we're reading, we need to understand the Jewishness. We, we need to understand the, the, the context, right? One thing I learned at Bible school is every text has a context. So often you hear people interpret Scripture and they kind of guess what it, what it means. And it, uh, don't guess. Don't just guess. Look where, it, look, where the te- look where the context that it's coming from. The other thing I learned is um, every text without a context is a pretext. 
You know, if you start to guess, you get it wrong. Uh, let me give you an example of every text has a context. I don't know if you, any of you read Bill Bryson's book on Shakespeare, but one of the nice things that he quotes uh, is the explanation of a line which you may know, and I think it's in Cymbeline, and the line is, uh, golden lads and lasses must, like chimney sweepers, come to dust. You know that? You know what golden lads and lasses are? It's not the corn, but you're very close. Golden lads and lasses are dandelions, or at least they were in 17th century Elizabethan England. So golden lads and lasses must, like chimney sweepers. So what are chimney sweepers? Dick Van Dyke. Cold, cold. <laughs> Think about dandelions. They're dandelion clocks, Okay. So then you get the context of what Shakespeare is saying. Golden lads and lasses must, like chimney sweepers, come to dust. So what I want to talk about now, just as an example, is what is the context of what we're doing here? And we come from Romans 11 to Exodus 6. The breaking of bread is a Passover meal. You know that. It's a remembrance of the, the death of the Lord Jesus, certainly, but it's a joyful expectation of his resurrection. You know, Gentile uh, visitors are allowed to go to Passover seders. And they're often really surprised that they're not really kind of formal. There's a lot of levity. There's a lot of uh, songs. Uh, there are games for the children. Uh, and there are a lot of jokes. And they're all mixed up together. It's not a solemn. Well, it has solemn parts in it. But it also has a lot of larking about and a lot of singing and a lot of feasting. This is not a memorial to a dead person. I can remember Liz being very cross about the memorial service. It's not a memorial to a dead service, uh, to a dead person. It, and I think that's something which has come to us culturally from a, from a Catholic history. You know, the, the Mass is a solemn... Uh, um, Celebration, a solemn remembrance of a death. But the tomb is empty. The Lord Jesus is alive and he's with us now. And we stand in his presence and we remember what he's done. It's a Passover meal, but it's not a, it's not a gloomy Passover. Just turn to 1 Corinthians 11, will you? Verse 23. For I received from the Lord, says Paul, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, there are, if you go to a Passover seder, there are four cups. And the cup after supper is the third one. And if you want to know what they're about, you have to go back to the first reading for the day, Exodus chapter 6. Will you do that? This is one of those happy occasions when the readings fit together. They do, they do that so often as well, don't they? Exodus 6. You remember when I told you about all the I wills of God? Well, each of the I wills is associated with one of the cups 
in the Passover Seder. Okay? So, therefore, say to the Israelites, this is, sorry, this is uh, Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That's the first cup. I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves to them. And that's the second cup. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And that is the third cup, the cup after supper. This is the cup of redemption. And that's the cup that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples and says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. God redeemed his people from Egypt to honour his old covenant, which we have here in Exodus 6, uh, his old covenant with Abraham. And Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to sin, and he's given us freedom, and he honours the new covenant, which God has made with, well, to, with us through, he told us uh, about it uh, in the book of Jeremiah, and it comes to us because of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. If you want to turn to Jeremiah, we'll just have a look at this new covenant because there's something about it which you'll find familiar in view of what we've been saying. Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to start reading at verse 33. And what I want you to notice is God is saying again, I will. God loves to say, I will. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the third cup, cup of redemption. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood, says Jesus. And the fourth cup is the one where God in Exodus 6 says, I will be your God. And Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup. He says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. I don't know what you think about that. Whether he doesn't do it because it's not his to drink, because it's God. I think that Jesus drinks the fourth cup in the kingdom. And I think that when Thomas meets him again after his death and resurrection and says to him, my Lord and my God, Thomas is remembering something which is very Jewish in its roots. I think we're sometimes a bit pernickety about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. And at times like this, we see it in all its majesty and all its wonder. So, here we are. That's the context of what we do. When you take this cup of wine, the cup of redemption, you're doing something which has its roots deep in Israel's history. And in order to understand it, you have to understand that Jesus is Jewish. Everything that he does, the way that he thinks, everything that he says has its roots here. And if you want to understand the context, that's what you have to do.
It was commanded by God in Egypt to strike the doorposts of their houses with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. When I see the blood, says the Lord God, I will pass over. And this is the context of what we do here. As we take the cup of redemption, Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that we share? And it's going to happen one day for Israel too. God's people Israel will share this cup of redemption because of Jesus. It's going to happen. And that's, just go back a moment to Romans 11, or you can listen to me read it if you like. That's the thing that Paul is focusing on. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's going to happen for God's people Israel. And Paul gets excited about it because at the end of it he bursts into song. The depths, oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God so that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Mike. In a few moments we're going to, um, to celebrate, celebrate the love and the redemption of, of our Lord Jesus that, that comes from our God by breaking bread and, and drinking wine together as, as one people. And before we do that, uh, let's, let's sing together from uh, Praise the Lord, number 286. We break this bread, and it tells us the reason we break this bread is because we want to share in the, in the body of Jesus. We want to share in his death, and we want to share in his resurrection. Shall we um, remain seated and uh, sing together, uh, we break this bread. Praise the Lord, number 286. Charles is going to lead our thanks for the bread. Father God, Lord, we pray for your blessing now as we join as a family to share this Passover meal and to celebrate what you have done for us. Lord, you have taken us out of our slavery You've brought us out of our own Egypt and you've given us freedom. Fathers, we celebrate this together. We see on the table before us a lamb. Your lamb. Perfect, without blemish. Your own son. And Fathers, we take of this lamb's body. May our hearts be filled with joy as to what you have done for us that you have reached your outstretched arm in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us redemption. Be with us, we pray, in his name. Amen. We rejoice, great and loving Father, in our continuing thanksgiving for this 
cup of redemption. We realize, O oh, our Father, that we fall short of the standard of thy children many times. But we pray for, 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 for forgiveness in all that we do. And ere that time comes when we shall indeed eat and drink anew with thy dear Son, our Lord and Master, in the kingdom of God. We pray that we may so order our steps in his service, that when he comes we might be received of him with thankfulness. Bless us then as we further wait before thee, as we drink this wine, the symbol of our Lord's freely given blood on the cross of Calvary, that we might have life now, and it found faithful when he comes again, might have it eternally in thy kingdom upon the earth. Bless us, therefore, as we further wait before thee. We ask this blessing and give thee all our thanks. Through Jesus Christ's name, amen. We're going to, um, to close um, this morning's service by singing together two songs. They're two, two prayers, really. Uh, the first, they're both thinking about uh, praying for, for peace. The first towards Jerusalem, um, with all that is, uh, is going on um, in and around Jerusalem, and, 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 and all that we thought about this morning, about the, the Jewish people. Let us pray together about for the peace there in Jerusalem, after which um, we will remain standing and we'll, we'll sing together, the Lord bless you, and sing this to one another, the Lord bless you, and the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine on you, that it will be gracious to you, and give you peace. Um, the first one from the hymn book is number 61. Let's uh, stand in a moment and sing together, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then we'll pray for the Lord to bless each one of us. And at the end of that, uh, Dave Webborn is going to conclude the service with prayer. Great God. In the last couple of days, we've been reading about how you shepherded your people. How firstly, you took Joseph to the land of Egypt to store up and prepare all that food. And how you brought Israel and his sons to Egypt to escape the famine. And Lord, we know how your will was done as you took them back into that promised land. And it is that promised land that has been on our TVs so much over the last few months, and particularly at Christmas time, a time of peace and hope. There were guns blasting, airstrikes and grenades and children wounded and killed. But Lord, we know that this is all in your great plan and that it is all so that your will will be done. And although it seems that every day on the news at the moment there's time of economic turmoil, of the economies of the world on the brink of collapse, and Lord, although we may be suffering some hardship because of this, help us. Help us to grow in faith as we focus on that day, 
that day to come when we will see our Lord Jesus, our Saviour, coming on the clouds with power and with great glory and we'll hear the trumpets and we will be with him forever and we will have a party and rejoice with our Lord forever. Lord, we long for that day to come. Be with us, give us peace as we walk from this earth into eternity. And it is through his name that we offer this prayer. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.